Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Sometimes we get the feeling that uh, we're like the people who decided to throw a party to honor a very special friend. They sent out invitations, decorated the hall, they had food catered in, and all the people came together at the designated time. But to their surprise, the guest of honor was not there. Finally, they uh, made the embarrassing discovery that no one had ever invited the guest of honor. You know, one family tried to overcome that by putting an extra place at their Christmas table for Jesus and, uh, and calling uh, Christmas at their house his birthday party. When one of the daughters was asked if she got anything, everything that she wanted for Christmas, she answered, no, but then it's not my birthday. Uh, we want to uh, make Jesus the guest of honor here at our church, don't we? And we want him to make him the guest of honor at our home also. Now, that's why some of you have boxes under your tree that say to Jesus. And when people come into your home, you'll say, hey, listen, what's that all about? Well, uh, Christmas is about Christ. It's not about us. It has a big impact. It really does, especially on our kids. Uh, because uh, there's no way that we can extract our kids from the culture, but I'll tell you what, uh, we can uh, really put a whole lot more Christ in Christmas. Amen? Amen. Let's read Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Uh, for we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. I was reading a commentary many years ago, and the commentator said, whenever Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. And that's essentially what this verse said. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes, that's the religious people, they knew the law, they knew the Bible, uh, the people together, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And so he said to them, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. These religious leaders knew immediately, uh, spontaneously, where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. And so here in my Bible, these words are in italics. And that means that they are an Old Testament passage. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Herod was already doing his math. He was trying to figure this out. This Messiah of which they speak, how old would he be? Uh, who are we looking for? And he sent him to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me and that I may come and worship him also. Now we know that's not the truth. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, a star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. You'll notice repeatedly in this passage of scripture, we keep finding the word young child, not baby, young child. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
and being divinely warned in a dream that they should not uh, return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Someone has said, whenever you come to worship the Lord, you can never go back the same way that you came. Worshiping the Lord is a wonderful thing. Uh, It almost takes a lifetime to really figure out what that is. I remember Warren Wearsby. You know, every now and then I quote him, and I want you, everything you find he writes, I want you to read. Warren Wearsby wrote a book one time. It was entitled Real Worship. And in the front of the book, he made this confession. He was, by then, a Bible scholar, a very famous pastor, uh, pastored the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And, I mean, he had credentials unlimited. And he said in his introduction in his book, he said, at one time in my life, and that wasn't long ago, he said, the only thing I knew about worship was that it was a word on the hymnal in our church. That's all I knew. And then he began to study and he began to learn what real true worship was. They came to worship him and they went back another way. I'd like to talk to you this morning about this subject when Christmas wasn't very merry. If you were here two weeks ago, remember we talked to you about the first Noel. Uh, Where did the first Christmas come from? Where was it? Well, we said to you then that was born in the mind of God. God himself created Christmas. A long, long time ago, according to Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says he chose you in him before the foundation of the world that you would be holy And without blame, before him in love, before he ever uttered those first words, let there be light, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And he created the salvation plan. And remember we said to you that uh, in that message that our Lord is omniscient. God is omniscient. That means there is no parameters that you can put on his knowledge. You know, here we are in our world, we try to figure out God, you know. It's a little ludicrous almost, isn't it? Uh, God's mind is is infinite. Uh, There's no way to measure the tremendous knowledge of God. But in his knowledge, he created this salvation plan of which you and I are a part. The second week in our series, we talked about the long night before Christmas. Remember, it was a period of time that God was preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus. He, uh, he orchestrated this. We called it providence, God carrying out his plan in the world. You can be sure that God's still doing that today. You and I are looking at the world. We think, man, everything is out of whack, and it is. But uh, God is sitting on the throne in heaven, and he is working out uh, the world's plan to his proper end for the glory of the Lord. But back before the time of Christ, he prepared a, a language, a trade language, that, and that was the Greek language that the gospel would be preached in. Uh, he prepared the superpower of Rome, and Rome took over the world and created a relative peace. You know, it's sure much easier to take the gospel into a world, a peaceful world, than a world at war. Um, then he... Uh, allowed the world to, uh, to do what they wanted to do. You know, God does that in the Bible. Do you know that? He works with people and works with people, and then all of a sudden he kind of backs off, and he says, okay, if that's the way you want it, go ahead. 
And so he worked with the world. He sent prophets to them. They kept rejecting him. They, they kept turning him off. And he said, okay. And so we have this 400 years of darkness. We call it the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No prophets coming from God. And so God prepared uh, this long night before Christmas. And we called it the night before Christmas. Whenever Christmas came, uh, the lights came on. Amen. Uh, big lights came on. The Bible says the angel came from heaven and the glory of the Lord shone round about. I'd like to see the glory of the Lord shining round about. You know, the story of Christmas is found in Matthew and, and Luke. Chronologically, Luke is first and Matthew is second. We referred to um, Luke chapter 2 last week. Remember, Caesar Augustus made that decree that all the world should be taxed and set the world in motion. And... Uh, I love uh, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the what? Hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. God whispered into the heart of Caesar Augustus that it was time for the decree. Get this world moving. And, uh, and so that caused, that caused Mary and Joseph, who were living in Nazareth, to get back to Bethlehem because Bethlehem was the place where Christ was prophesied to be born. And... Uh, and we love these Christmas prophecies. I do. I wish we just had like two or three months to preach about Christmas. You know, we kind of turn it on a month before and we turn it off right after Christmas. And then next Christmas we turn it on again and then we turn it off. It's like uh, there's, we don't talk about it much. And we have these passages of Scripture that we always bring out. And we, and we get the impression there's only like a handful of them. We talk about Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called what? Emmanuel, right? Uh, we talk about uh, Isaiah 9:6. Behold, a child shall be born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the what? Prince of Peace. And we like Micah 5, too, a lot, too. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me as to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. We like that. And so we get to thinking, well, I know of three Christmas prophecies. I got them in my pocket. I'll pull them out next year. But you know, as reading, it's dangerous to read. You know, you learn things when you read. It's amazing. I was reading on the Internet. Uh, there's a guy on our pastor's internet circle uh, who is really quite brilliant and uh, he was telling uh, about a fellow named Alfred Edersheim. I have his book in my, in my library back there in the office. He wrote the book The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth and if you like heavy reading, get his book. Uh, Alfred Edersheim said this, he said there are 400 and 56 Old Testament passages interpreted messianically by the ancient Jews. And he not only makes that proclamation, he gives the references to Jewish literature where these interpretations can be found. And so my little three Christmas verses don't look very significant, do they? <laughs> to Alfred Edersheim, who said there are 456 and then at the end of his declaration, he said, and that's not all of them. So he's just covering himself. That's not all of them. I'm, he said, I'm sure it's not complete. 
And so there are plenty of Old Testament prophecies in the, in the Bible, thanks to Alfred Edersheim's research, uh, that talk about the coming of Christ. Uh, what we want to do today is uh, we, we talked about the shepherd's field. That chronologically was first. Uh, the shepherds were guarding their flocks by night, and uh, this some angel came from heaven and uh, came down to the shepherds and made that announcement. Uh, this was interesting because the shepherds were really kind of despised people. They were uneducated. Uh, they were at the bottom of the social pole. Uh, they were certainly irreligious. They had no time for religion. They worked night and day out in the field, and everybody looked down on them. But it's interesting that they were the ones to whom God, first of all, announced the birth of Christ. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that Jesus really, really cares about people that people don't care about. It's a wonderful thing, our God. You know that? It's a wonderful thing. I was reading about uh, a, a fella. He's a businessman. And he and his wife have what they call a, the bum ministry. Now just give me a minute. Don't, don't jump to conclusions. The bum ministry. And what they do is they go out at Christmas time and they dress up like bums. And, uh, and they visit churches. And they visit Bible colleges on campus to see what kind of reaction they get from people. And I was reading the article, and I think the article said they'd been doing this for about 14 years, and over the 14-year period, only 20 people had tried to give them the plan of salvation. You know, the church has a lot of talk, but not a lot of what? Walk, right? But it's interesting, whenever God announced the birth of, of, of Christ, he came to the people that nobody wanted to deal with. I guess we could, no, I guess we couldn't. Uh, they were irreligious. They, people weren't interested in them. Uh, let's fast forward uh, to, uh, to Matthew. You know, in the shepherd story, uh, the key word was baby, but now we have another word, and that's young child. Uh, it's believed, I, I was noticing this last night in the service, you know, we have this little manger set over here, and, and it's typical of all the ones that you buy in the store. Uh, you have all the animals, you have Mary Joseph, the baby, and you have these other guys, they're quite, they, they're quite flashy, you know that? These wise men from the East. Uh, uh, but most people believe... Uh, that uh, these two events were separated by maybe one or two years. They're not the same. Now, that would mess up your, uh, the production of this thing, right? If we let that word out. Uh, whenever the wise men came to the house, it was a couple years later. And so I'm just waiting for somebody. I'm thinking about it myself, starting a business and making two sets with a big sign between you know, two years or something. Nonetheless, we read here in our scripture for today that the seekers came from the east. They would be the first fruits of people from the Gentile world. And many would follow them, and you and I are living proof today that, uh, that we have followed them. We don't know how many there were of these wise men. Now, in your manger set, there are how many? Three, right? 
And uh, the reason why there are three is because there were three gifts, right? Gold, what? Frankincense and myrrh. But J. Vernon McGee, whose uh, radio program we still hear today, said there could be 300. Thanks, J. Vernon, for your input. Uh, it doesn't tell us how many wise men came. Uh, it just refers to the three gifts that they open. Uh, how do we know these things? Well, the Bible teaches these things. Uh, how did these wise men uh, from the east uh, come to follow the star? Well, remember last week I talked to you about how the Lord scattered the nation of Israel uh, because of their disobedience? Uh, into different parts of the world. And on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Jews were there from every nation under heaven. He did a good job scattering them. But when they went to these foreign places, either on purpose or, or, or being forced to go there, they took their way of life. They took their scripture. And their main thing was that they, wasn't, they weren't going to be assimilated into the culture. That's always a good thing for God's people. God's people need to be different. They don't need to be completely assimilated into the culture. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, we have that. Let's, uh, let's read this. Here's a story about Daniel right here. Let's read it together. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Daniel had a fabulous ministry in Babylon. And he had an important place, and he used his influence well. He was one of the wise men. He was one of the wise men. And he uh, related to all these other wise men, don't you think that Daniel told those wise men about the Lord. I mean, uh, he was a walking, talking, preaching machine. God blessed him. And so where did these wise men, they came all the way from the east, uh, up here to the house to worship this child, where did they learn about this? Well, they learned about it through the Jews that had been dispersed. Uh, and they followed the light, the star, Psalm 147, verse 4. I like that little verse. We have it. Let's read it. He counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. Can you do that? I don't think. Uh, he calls them all by name. Uh, he set this star in the sky. And uh, there were these people followed it. But, but there is this prophecy in the Old Testament. I'm going to give it to you right now. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And we're, let's read it together. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Now here is an Old Testament prophecy about a star and a scepter. Uh, and so I just have a feeling that these people, these Jewish people, were sharing, and this was their heart, and they were looking for a star. And when they saw it, they identified it with a scepter, and that means power. 
Uh, we have, I think, a little picture there of a, a leader who has a scepter in, in his hand. There he is. This is what a scepter is. If you see somebody coming like that, you know what that is. That's a scepter. Big, long pole. That means he's in charge, by the way. He's in charge. And so this Old Testament prophecy says, listen, there's going to be a star, and the one who is coming has a scepter, and that's none other than the Lord. And so these people in these foreign lands were looking for stars, those who are looking for the Messiah. And God was good at putting light in the sky. In Exodus 13, 21, uh, he led the nation of Israel uh, with a cloud by day and by night a pillar of fire. Well, these people were following the star. And when they got into town, I want you to notice in verse number 2, Matthew 2, 2, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, Bible commentators say this, that whenever... These wise men, no matter how many there were of them, if there were three or if uh, J. Vernon McGee is right and 300, that would cause a stir. Uh, they, were, they were asking around town, where is he? The star led them generally, but not specifically, evidently. And they were asking around town, asking people, where is he? They're creating a lot of stir in the town. And so Herod, uh, Herod was afraid. He was paranoid. Uh, and he called uh, the Jewish doctors of the law in, and they quoted Micah 5.2, just like that. They knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born, but they left off the last portion of the verse, the portion that talks about the deity of Christ. He is from old, from everlasting. They left it off. They knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born, but listen to this. They had no faith to go there themselves. They had academic knowledge, but they weren't looking for him. They had head knowledge without heart knowledge. Well, James in the New Testament talks about that. There are many, many people in our world that have head knowledge of Christ, but not heart knowledge. They know the facts of Christmas. They know about the story of Christ only intellectually. That's what these wise men did. They had the, they had the scripture down... But they didn't have enough faith to join the wise men to go find the Messiah. They weren't interested in that. Uh, they had it only in their head and not in their heart. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference between a head belief in Christ and a heart belief. Uh, someone said it's 18 inches. Big difference. You know, the Bible says, I, I like this verse. James 2.19, uh, you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe. Uh, if you have a head belief, the demons, man, they believe in God. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They have all the facts, and they believe them intellectually. But they haven't embraced Christ as their Savior. You know, there are many who know the facts of Scripture, uh, but they don't have the faith to come and worship the Lord. Well, uh, they arrived at the house. And here the young child was with Mary, his mother. Uh, when Matthew mentions mother and child, Christ is always given first place. They fell down and they worshipped him. What a sight. Uh, and this is, this is amazing to me because, you know, I can, I can understand, and in our culture I can understand how if, if we saw Jesus and walking by the Sea of Galilee and we knew that he was the Messiah, 
it would be easy, wouldn't it, to just fall down and worship him. Just to get on your knees or on your face and worship him. But, but how hard would it be to do that in front of a young child? That's, it's a little bit different, isn't it? But they, nonetheless, they did that. They fell down and they worshiped Jesus. Uh, and you know, Jesus uh, is worthy to be worshiped because he's God. John 4.23 says this. Let's read it. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. You know, God wants you to worship him so much so he's seeking you to worship him. But, you know, this is always a little bit convicting for me because, you know, I've, I've worshipped a lot of different things in life rather than the Lord. I've gone after this and that and this and that. And, but the Lord has been seeking me so that I should worship him. I have this new theory a few years old that, uh, and I've, I've mentioned it to you before, but I'll mention it again, uh, that I have uh, special times of the day to worship God. Not to ask him for anything, but to give him my worship. First thing in the morning, I worship God. My cell phone is set for 2 o'clock in the afternoon when it buzzes. I worship God. If I'm in an environment where I can do that. If I'm in a meeting or around people, I don't say, okay, let's stop the meeting and jump up on the table and make a spectacle of myself. Uh, at 8 o'clock at night, my cell phone goes off, I worship God. And then the last thing I do before I go to bed as I worship God, uh, Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and the Lord will hear my voice. That was the uh, ancient Israel. That's what they did. And, so, and, and the reason why I do that is because in my life, so much of my life, I worshipped other things. Oh, yeah, I was in the ministry. Sometimes I think I worship the ministry. Sometimes I think I worship the, the work of God rather than the God of the work. But those days are, have changed. And so he's saying, listen, uh, a father is seeking such to, to worship him. Um, true worshipers are people everywhere who worship God through the Son from their heart. Second uh, Corinthians 8.5 says, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and and then to us by the will of God. Uh, they came and they brought their gifts, but the first thing I find in this passage of Scripture is they gave themselves. Before they opened their gifts, they bowed down and worshiped. And that's the order that God wants from you and me. I believe that if you give everything you have to God, you'll never have any problem giving your gifts to God. You know, there are some people that come to church and say, okay, listen, I'll be a Christian, but don't ask me to give too much or to work too much, or, to, put, or to, to just change my lifestyle in any way. Well, listen, you're missing the whole point of this thing. Uh, this thing could be so easy to you, all you have to do is bow down and give God everything you have. And then you won't resist. Then you won't resist what he really wants to. 
He not only wants your worship, but he wants your time, he wants your talents, and he wants your treasure. And when it, but if he has you, he's got all of that. You know that? And so the first step is to, is to bow down and say, Lord, here I am. Everything I have belongs to you. I can't get to work unless you get me up in the morning. I can't even think unless you give my brain the ability to think. Everything I have has come from you. And so I'm just going to give it all back to you. And boy, when you first give yourself to the Lord, then everything else is easy. Then you'll bring the gold of your life. You know, gold speaks of his birth. He was born a king. Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added to you. Give God the gold of your life. Don't withhold. Give him the gold of your life. That means the best of your life. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm going to serve God when I get older, maybe in retirement. Oh, right. I mean, let's not waste another day. Let's get involved now. You may never get old. You may never have that blessing. And what a tragedy it would be if you didn't worship the Lord now. Give him the gold, the frankincense speaks of the fragrance of his life, and the myrrh speaks of his death. Well, they opened their gifts, and then Herod said, Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kill this kid. And all sorts of prophecies were fulfilled from that point in time on. Uh, it wasn't a very Merry Christmas. They had to take their little boy Jesus down to Egypt to protect him. And uh, there weren't very many people signing on to this whole effort. Would you want to sign on to be a part of the entourage of the suffering servant? How, how would that sell in any society? Hey, come and follow me and suffer with me. Uh, he came, first of all, as a servant. Mark 10.45 says, And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Come and serve with us. How many people would sign up for that? We want to be served, right? He says, listen, you follow me, I'm a servant. You get around me, we serve. Uh, he also was a sympathizer of our weaknesses. I really like this. Uh, one of the reasons that Jesus came was so he could sense our pain. Now, he didn't have to do that because he's omniscient and he knows all about that. But he wanted to show you and me that he, that he could walk this path of pain. Uh, because uh, one of our favorite verses is Hebrews 4.15. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Uh, he wanted to sense our pain, our weakness. And so when we pray to him, Lord, I'm having a bad day, he, can, he knows about that. I'm being rejected. He knows about that, right? There's, no, there's nothing as good to talk to somebody who's walked in your shoes. You know that? When you're going through an awful time and you call somebody to counsel you and they say, hey, listen, relax, I've been there. You, what do you do? You relax, right? Because you, thought, you, you think no one's ever been there. Uh, you know, when little kids are growing up in our society today, they, they are rejected. They come home and they cry themselves to sleep at night. They don't fit in in class. Uh, uh, and so whenever they pray to the Lord, the Lord says, listen, I know, what, I know how you're feeling. I was rejected. I love you. 
Uh, and then he, last of all, he was our substitute. Uh, he, uh, he accomplished his goal. He died upon the cross for our sins. I think we have 2 Corinthians 5.21, don't we, Cindy? Let's read this, okay? For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Wow. Uh, in our service last night, I was telling the people, you know, the, the only way you can be saved is to give God your sin. That's all. That's the only thing you can give God for your salvation. Uh, you can't give him any good works. He doesn't need any of those. Uh, he's already done the work. Uh, sometimes people think, you know, well, what can I do to be saved? You can't do anything to be saved because the work has already been done. It's not a matter of ever doing anything. This, this whole thing has been settled on the cross. All the work that for your soul's salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And the only thing that you can do is give him your sin. That's all he wants. That's all he wants out of you. Your broken life, your acknowledgement that your sin has separated you from God and that you're, you don't want to pay the penalty for your sin, Jesus already did. And so that's the great exchange. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin that we could be made right with God through Christ. So when we give Christ our sin, listen to this, he gives us his righteousness. That's the exchange. It's not even, is it? That's why we call it amazing what? You say, boy, that's so easy. No, it's not. Jesus paid all the hard price on the cross. You say, and he made it easy for you, not for him. The day that you get honest with God and say, Lord, here's my broken life. Here's my, here's my sin. Forgive me. He will. He will. And, but until you do that, then you carry the burden of your sin and you carry the penalty of your sin. When you give your sin to Christ, uh, he, puts a name through, he puts a line through your name, paid in full by Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, when Jesus died upon the cross, that's when Christmas became merry. Because the church went out and took this message and, and um, there, there were actually two sides to the cross. The first side was um, Christmas wasn't merry. But after Jesus died upon the cross, uh, it became a celebration because everything was done that needed to be done. He died upon the cross, and all we had to do was accept it by faith. We can't add anything to it. We can't take anything away from it. It is what it is. Jesus died in your place. He became your substitute. And by simple faith and trust in him and him alone, you can have eternal life. If you're here today in the church and you've never made this decision for Christ, you've never said, Lord, I, I, there's nothing I can give you but my sin. Do that right now. Just say, Lord, I've, I've broken your law. I've offended your holiness. And I've, my sin put you on the cross. Forgive me, Lord. I, I am, I'm broken as a result of this.
wash away my sins by your blood. He will run to you. He will run to you today to wash away your sins. Because that's why, that's the purpose of it all. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this day, and we pray now that as we have our concluding song that you will move among our church, Lord. For people here today that need you as their Savior, I pray that they will reach out by faith now, put their arms around you and you alone, and trust you for their soul salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.